This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Defense Health Agency supports the delivery of integrated, affordable, and high-quality health care services to the military health system. To meet its mission, that is, to provide a medically ready force and a ready medical force, the agency must acquire critical products and services. As such, DHA embraces and applies the full range of acquisition disciplines, resulting in efficient delivery of effective medical products and services. DHA's component acquisition executive, J4, oversees these functions as they are applied to the acquisition of supplies, equipment, services, information technology systems, and infrastructure. What are the strategic priorities for DHA's component acquisition executive? How is DHA working with industry? And what does the future hold for acquisition at the Defense Health Agency? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Barkley Butler, Component Acquisition Executive for the Defense Health Agency. Dr. Butler, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thank you very much. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Mark Newsom. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Dr. Butler, would you give us an overview of the mission of the Defense Health Agency? What prompted its creation, and how has that mission evolved since its inception? Uh, The the mission of the Defense Health Agency, a combat support agency, is to lead the MHS as an integrated system of readiness and health to achieve the quadruple aim. Now, now the quadruple aim is kind of unique to the Defense Health Agency, and it's based on uh, a healthcare industry's um, triple aim. And the triple aim is broadly known there, and it is is, uh, better care better health at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. And what we do for the quadruple aim is we put readiness right in the middle of that. So it's better health, better care, lower cost, and readiness. That's what the quadruple aim is. So so the Defense Health Agency, it was was built um, as really coming out of a uh, report coming out of uh, 2011 that identified that we needed to get better, more efficient, um, in the delivery of care and our readiness mission. And, and at the time, we had the services, the medical services, the Army, Navy, and, and Air Force Medical Services running what we call the direct care system. Th- those are our military treatment facilities. And it was the TRICARE management activity that was running the purchase care piece. And what we really wanted to do was to combine that into a single integrated delivery network. And that was really the impetus for the Defense Health Agency. And, and I'll tell you, the, uh, the NDAA 2017 it has uh, actually extended that even beyond the TRICARE 
plan, our, our managed care support contractors, out to further integrated delivery networks, other systems. And Congress wants us to treat that entire um, system as one uh, delivery care system. So, so they're really stretching us even further than that. So, you know, moving from uh, general to specific, uh, would you tell us more about your office, DHA's Component Acquisition Executive? Uh, how is it organized and what acquisition functions fall under your purview? Yeah, so uh, there are two two main lines of effort uh, for me. One is on the procurement side, and that's really where I buy um, products and services uh, for the Defense Health Agency. Uh, and, it, and that is the full scope um, of those products and services. The other side of the house is the acquisition side. And this is where I'm leading the end-to-end from a requirements uh, concept development through to the development of a system to the operations and sustainment could be five or ten years, clear down to the disposal of the system. That's the entire life cycle chain of our major systems in the Defense Health Agency. Those are the two main uh, thrusts of the, of the CAE. You've provided us a sense of the large organization and the mission of your office. Uh, perhaps could you tell us more about your specific responsibilities, your duties as a DHA CAE? Uh, how do your efforts support the department's undersecretary of defense, ATNL? Yeah, I, I'm uh, dotted lined up to ATNL, oh, okay. um, and that's really my line of business. I call it that's my line of business. My command and control is to uh, Admiral Bono and the Defense mm-hmm. Health Agency. Um, and, and so in that line of component acquisition executive, uh, my key role here is being the principal advisor to Admiral Bono in any and all matters having to do with acquisition and procurement. And so very specifically on the acquisition side, um, I'm responsible for the planning, programming, budgeting, execution, coordination uh, across that uh, management uh, uh, structure that leads to uh, improved acquisition, a more efficient deployment of our systems, the management of the program managers themselves, typically through a program executive officer. So, you know, with those duties and responsibilities, what are your top, say, uh, three or several management challenges that you've faced, and how have you sought to address them? Probably my top management challenge is the short-staffed. I'm at about 50% uh, staffing on the contracting side, on the procurement side. When you compare the Defense Health Agency and the number of contracts, the number of contract actions we have, we're about 50% of where the rest of the DOD is. That's a huge challenge. And then you tag that to hiring freezes that you've probably heard of. They're recently lifted, which is great. Really pleased for that. And you look at a turnover rate that's a little bit higher, maybe about 10% higher in the 1102 series. Those are mm-hmm. my contracting officer series. And that then actually leads to stress in the organization. To mitigate that, though, what I've got to do is I've got to look at ways that I can reduce the demand signal into those contracting officers. How do I reduce the load so that they can write better contracts, better performance work statements, do that quality control so that, so that ends up with a good product or a good service for my customers? Uh, and one way to do that is to not only do uh, the standard, very classic performance improvement uh, effort, so we standardize um, how we do our business, but also to redirect the demand signal. Um, if So if I've got very small purchases, for example, let's expand the government uh, purchase card uh, program so that we're buying little things where they need to be bought and leaving the contracting officers to do those contra- complex contracts. Very interesting. Um, and the challenges that you have there. Uh, what has surprised you since taking on your new role? 
Well, I will tell you the biggest surprise, and, and it still surprises me today, is that this is such a great job. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, think about it. This is kind of feels like one of those back office things that nobody ever hears about. You know, the guys that are doing the, the policies is so boring. I said, but no, that could, nothing could be further from the truth. This job, if you think about it, I get to touch just about everything that's going on in a defense health agency. And here's what's something that's really exciting. I get to do things that I affect the quality of clinical care. And you wouldn't think about that from a contracts guy. But if I can build, for example, a uh, performance-based uh, uh, contracts that incentivize quality of care, wow, I can actually drive how well we treat our patients and, and drive improvement. Really, a contracting guy can affect clinical care. Wow, that's just tremendous. So I, I would say that's probably the most surprising thing. And, and I'll tell you, Admiral Bruno, as a leader, what she does is she pretty much gets the person in the, in the seat and then gets out of their way. You know, she really relies on you to do the job. And that's a tremendous amount of freedom. The amount of innovation that she's allowing us to do is just, uh, just tremendous. So Dr. Butler, can we learn a little bit more about yourself? Uh, could you describe your career path for our listeners? How did you begin your career and what brought you to your current leadership role? My career path is probably pretty unusual for a <laughs> CAE. Um, I started out in medical research and development, and it was substantially on the human performance side. So I was in chem defense, and we were looking at, you know, how do we have aviators fly into um, a contaminated areas, and they're pretreated with uh, anti-nerve agents, for example, and how could they, could they do that? And then I, I switched into biomechanics, and how do we have, say, for example, an aviator, if he crashes his helicopter, what are the forces in the spine that we need to have? I was the biomechanics guy. I would trade that over to the engineers, and then they would build crash-worthy seats so the aviators could walk away from crashes that they would be either severely injured or, or even killed in the Hueys or the Cobras. Now, I wasn't the lead engineer on that. I don't want to pretend I was the top guy. <laughs> but it's really neat to see that kind of stuff and if you, you know, that you had a role in all of that. So that was my R&D window. I did tons of contracting there as well, both uh, in writing the proposals and managing those contracts. I then went uh, from that area to uh, the CIO, the medical CIO realm, and where I was uh, with actually General Peak at the 44th Medical Brigade. And we deployed uh, with him. He, of course, he's now or was the secretary of the VA. Just a great guy. I then went on, continued on that realm and finished up my military career as the uh, CIO of the Army Medical Department. I went to the private sector and then I continued in that CIO realm where I was uh, working toward interoperability of medical records and linking the uh, images to really the electronic, electronic medical record. I then got back into government at the SES level, continued with the health IT realm, and then Admiral Bono um, uh, selected me to run the CAE. So, you know, given your experience, a diverse uh, uh, background, actually, uh, would you outline your key leadership principles and perhaps maybe you could illustrate them in action for us? Yeah, uh, there's, boy, there's so many principles of, of leadership. I, I would say um, probably a couple that I would really emphasize. Uh, would be uh, knowing yourself and seeking self-improvement. That's that's just critical to a leader. they got to understand themselves, their strengths, and their own weaknesses, and then mitigate those. I think taking care of people, training your staffs, ensuring your staff's informed, managing those expectations, 
uh, engaging your staffs where they're going to be successful. If they're successful, then the agency is successful. And probably uh, the top of the list for me would be uh, uh, sound and timely decisions. Wow, that is, that's just like the most important thing. That's what a leader does. I think we rely on our leaders for those sound and timely decisions. But, but if I could just stretch that a little bit, those principles apply to a leadership style. And, and I would say my style is more of a collaborative style. And it's a little unusual in the Department of Defense. It's a little <laughs> bit more directive styles are more common. But I find that I make better decisions. Remember, it's all about those decisions. I make better decisions when I have diversity of thought in the staff. So not only my staff, but my stakeholders get involved in the decisions. And and because of that, the decisions are just much better. The, the drawback is it might add some time to it, yeah. but typically not a lot. It, and it isn't decision uh, by committee. I have to emphasize that. The decisions are mine and they're mine alone. Um, but to get that kind of diversity of thought within the decision-making uh, uh, time frame leads to better decisions, and, and that's why I've picked that style. What are the strategic priorities for DHA's component acquisition executive? We will ask Dr. Barkley Butler when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Barkley Butler, Component Acquisition Executive at the Defense Health Agency. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, um, Dr. Butler, um, many folks listening may be familiar with other government mission support functions like finance, accounting, information technology, uh, but not so familiar with acquisition and procurement. Could you take a moment to explain to us, maybe give us a high-level overview of both acquisition and procurement functions? Yeah, I talked about uh, those two pieces, and I got to emphasize that they're different from each other. Even my own customers in the DHA, yeah, they sometimes that. don't understand that. And, and, and if I talk about acquisition, I, I mentioned it's from the concept development through develop, the system development itself through operations, operations maintenance, could be five or ten years, to, through to disposal. And along that life cycle, there are spots that you do procurement. Mm -hmm. You buy um, a, a program management office shop. You, you buy the system that you're going to develop. You buy engineers to deploy the system and operate the system. So there's lots of procurement along the way. Then, then separately, the procurement itself, this, this is buying... Uh, products and services for us to run the hospitals. It's it's the sutures. It's the working with Defense Logistics Agency to get better pricing on pharmaceuticals. It's uh, looking at the uh, uh, the strategic sourcing um, where I can combine things to get better prices for for uh, my customers. So so the two are very very different. Um, but they are supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. That's a great explanation, good distinction. So, you know, leading on your experience at both the government and the private sector, um, what is your vision for DHA's acquisition uh, strategy, and what are your key priorities? You know, acquisition in the Defense Health Agency is a little different 
uh, maybe I'd even say a lot different than what you see uh, in the DOD at large. We're structured in such a way uh, that it's it's a continuation of where we came out of the TRICARE management activity. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we're shaped a lot like how the Defense Logistics Agency is shaped in terms of acquisition. But those two processes are very different than what we see typically in the DOD. And, and really, uh, one of my priorities is to find out, is that the best way that we should be organized? I, I want to do a business case analysis and present that to the Admiral for her decision in, in that, are we doing the best practices in acquisition? Because quite frankly, when the budgets shrink, I don't have the luxury of not doing best practices. Mm-hmm. I've got to do it as effectively as I possibly can. And, and I, I want this to be more than just a, a migration from one organization to another. I want it to be an active decision. So we're working up that business case analysis and we'll present that to the Admiral for a decision. A lot of these different models work very, very well. I'm not saying that the model we have is the wrong model. What I want to do is make an active decision and say, yes, that's the model for us or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably one of my biggest priorities in the acquisition world. Certainly. Uh, let's follow up on strategy for just a second. What are your persistent internal challenges and external pressures uh, that have shaped and informed your strategy? And how are you, how are you managing priorities of funding uh, coming from the multiple stakeholders? You know, you have uh, DHA, you've got Secretary of Defense, Congress. Yeah, probably my uh, my biggest internal pressure, um, it, it, and it's a classic one in my in my domain, is the forecast. Mm-hmm. If I have a good forecast, mm-hmm. then I can project where I'm going to be. I can manage the workload. I can manage the workforce. I can prioritize my level of efforts and get the customers what they need. But getting that forecast is really hard. It's a little bit like pulling teeth. I've got to get with customers, spend time with customers to get them to realize that it takes a number of months, maybe even for the larger ones, a year or two to get those uh, into effect. That's a hard timeline for most of my customers to realize. So I've got to help them project into the future. Where do they need to be? In, in six months, in a year, and in two years. So the forecast and running that is probably my hardest thing. Uh, and, and then the, there are other pieces of it. It's kind of classic performance improvement. How do I get better with that, with a short work staff, mm-hmm. uh, workforce, mm-hmm. and produce those quality products that they need? Forecast helps a lot with that. And that's why you saw in my uh, re- most recent industry day an emphasis mm-hmm. on the forecast itself. We got to get better at it. Um, we will continue to get better at it. We want to post it most likely uh, on a monthly basis, keep it hot, keep it updated. And that's most useful for industry. If it's useful for industry, then in a selfish way, I get better products and service for it. Certainly. That's going to be welcome news to the industry, of course. Um, you talked earlier about the DHA is, is changing and they've gone to this joint directorate uh, structure. Uh, given that approach, you know, what changes have you made to the acquisition strategy and your team to provide optimal support to the agency? Yeah, so uh, so the DHA, what was first formed, it was really kind of formed around uh, shared services. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a part and parcel of trying to get better uh, efficiencies out of the organization. The Admiral uh, then felt that 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 doesn't communicate well with our stakeholders. I mean, we're a defense agency. They don't know what hit shared services means. They don't know what contract shared services group means. But they do know what a J4 means, and they know what a J6 means. So she she uh, uh, kind of realigned the organization to give it that J structure. And and within that J structure, it was a, it was much easier for our clients and our customers, those folks external to the agency, to figure out who to talk to and how to get their services. So that was a real plus. Um, particularly in my area, 
um, what it what it really did is it really re-emphasized the role that I play as a J in supporting my fellow J directors. Um, so it, so by building that J structure, um, it brought out the nature of their particular missions and functions and how I've got to serve them. So when, for example, uh, General Clark calls me up the J3, he gets my attention. When the J11 calls up for the National Capital Area, I know that's an important thing I need to pay attention to. So it was a focusing way, a way to communicate. It's much more of a communications tool and to facilitate communications than anything else. And just for our listeners, J means joint. Right? J means joint, yes. Yeah. And that's how staffs are identified. Uh, and a joint staff is is listed as J. A, a general officer staff would lead, the leading uh, letter would be a G. G. And then the codes, one, the, the codes are kind of military speak, you know, one is personnel, six is health information technology, four is the logistics chain, and so we have all our our codes, yeah. So, uh, Dr. Butler, what are enhanced multi-service markets, and how were these markets selected uh, for enhanced authority, and how do they differ from your regular multi-service markets? So our, our enhanced multi-service markets are are markets, uh, almost geographic regions, where we have the three service medical departments and their hospitals, and they have overlapping catchment areas. Okay. That's kind of the fundamental definition. I mean, and it's typically all three services. They are our larger markets, and and markets uh, markets are really important thing for us. Uh, we are we the Defense Health Agency are really fundamentally a market-based focused structure. We look to markets. Markets are our our readiness platforms, there are business platforms, there are health platforms. This is where we see the transformation um, of the Defense Health Agency. In those multi-service markets, by the way, there are six of them, and they uh, have single business operations plans. And those business operations plans, uh, it's different that they used to be uh, down in the uh, MTFs, the military treatment facilities. They're, they are now a market-faced business plan, and their job is to really transform the business side and transform the clinical side. When you have Army, Navy, and Air Force all serving the same patient population, you need common clinical services. So we look at that as our business platform and as our readiness platform, our health platforms. The DHA is deploying the new electronic health record, MHS Genesis. Consumes a lot of amount of budgetary, uh, personnel, um, other kinds of resources, what other projects are you focusing on as a priority to accomplish in parallel uh, to the MHS Genesis effort? Yeah, probably the uh, the first one is actually still in support of the MHS Genesis, and that is the um, uh, the health IT shared services. It's still going to be shared service focused, mm -hmm. and in the health IT space, the goal there is to create a, a single medical community of interest, a network that is nothing but a medical network. And then what that allows us to do is it allows us to pass medical traffic at reasonable bandwidths at very low latency so the docs and nurses can get their jobs done. And uh, Colonel Terry out of the J6, the health IT, um, he is deploying that medical community of interest. That would be a very large effort. It's, a, it's across the entire uh, uh, military health system. We've got all of the security uh, stacks in place, and we're, we're, we're largely using the DISA networks. We're writing their physical networks and the medical 
uh, community of interest is a subnet underneath that. So it is medical traffic only seen by medics. And that's both plus and minus. We're not bothering the larger DOD with medical traffic. They don't see it or hear it. And then again, we're not burdened by having them consume bandwidth that we need to get our mission done. So there's one piece of it. Uh, Other pieces are in those shared service lines would be, for example, uh, working with the pharmacy folks to figure out uh, how do we get better pricing for our drugs and our pharmaceuticals? Mm-hmm. If we do a class review, say statins, for example, and, and of course it, it, the driver is are they clinically significant, clinically relevant, given that cut, then how do I get a better pricing for the Defense Health Agency? And with that better pricing, then we guarantee a certain market share to those companies. So it's a win-win situation. Always driving to a win-win. Fair profit for our customers, our, our, our vendors, while we get a good price. So, you know, speaking of, uh, of getting a good price or finding ways to, to actually procure, what is strategic sourcing? Um, how does DHA leverage the, this acquisition approach? And are there strategic sourcing vehicles that you're using? Yeah, strategic sourcing is really important to us at, at the DHA, at the DHA, at the J4 specifically. This is the way that we can uh, further leverage um, the efficiencies of having a defense health agency. And, and I'll give you one example. Today, we have literally thousands of contracts around the military health system that buy contracted doctors and nurses and dentists and ancillary staff. Well, we've created a single vehicle, a strategic sourcing vehicle, that uh, will buy all those docs and nurses where all of the medical treatment facilities can then use that vehicle, common terms and conditions, common pricing across the nation. Uh, that is actually under competition right now. We expect we'll have that awarded um, in the first quarter of 18. Uh, that would be an example of a strategic source. So I go from thousands of contracts to one. Wow, what a huge savings there with common terms and conditions. Now, Waverable, though, I'll have to tell you, because sometimes, you know, those vehicles, I can't think of everything. There's something that we need that doesn't fit there. So we'll go to a waiver, but we'll use kind of a continuous process improvement as a high reliability organization to modify that contract so we continue to evolve it to get it to be responsive to our clinical needs. That's a good example of a strategic source of eagle. But it's not just that. It's health IT, for example. Instead of having hospitals buy those independently, that can be a push. I can have discovery um, tools on the network that knows exactly what's there, how old it is, when it should be replaced, and the hospital gets out of the IT business. That, that computer comes down to them after, after a four-year mark and is just automatically replaced because it's outdated. Um, those kinds of strategic sourcing vehicles lead to much better service for my clinicians and administrators. How is the Defense Health Agency changing the way it acquires products and services? We will ask Dr. Barkley Butler, DHA's Component Acquisition Executive, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What are the key priorities for the NIH Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, NITAC? How does NITAC assist federal agencies to accomplish their mission? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and much more with Bridget Gower, acting director of NITAC, on the next Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour 
I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Barkley Butler, Component Acquisition Executive at the Defense Health Agency. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, Dr. Butler, to what extent is a DHA moving away from lowest price, technically acceptable, towards best value with a fixed price incentive fee or award fee? And how does doing this ensure improved performance? Yeah, the LPTA uh, contracts um, it, it are kind of described as a race to the bottom. The vendors, and we feel it too, that in order to win this business, they get lower and lower and lower prices until they're right on the edge of not being able to perform. That's not good for anybody. And so we're purposely getting away from that. Now, there are, there are times when they are exactly the right contract. Like, for example, if I'm buying uh, uh, network services and the bar is very high, like I've got five nines of reliability for a network, then that's probably – everybody knows it. That's probably a good place to use an LPTA what uh, long-haul uh, vendor can give me that the best price for that? But that isn't a lot of the stuff that we do. Most of the stuff we do is really professional services, and, and an LPTA is just the wrong method. So what we're driving to are we're driving to performance-based contracts, and there's two kinds of those. Uh, there's, there's the performance base that is the contract itself. How quickly did they ramp up, and do they deliver on time? Do they have the right skill sets? Are the folks properly trained? And, and are they producing the products at this timeline? That we, that's kind of the contract management piece. Um, but then in the clinical world, as I mentioned, we want to actually incentivize and measure based on clinical performance. So we're looking at uh, either fixed price or cost plus a little percent maybe. We want the vendors to keep the doors open and the lights on. You know. But then we, the real money, the profit really then is in the incentive pool. What we want to get to is incentive-based performance contracts. That, we think, uh, will lead to much better products and services for us, a better deal for the vendors and a better deal for us. These are models that are currently being deployed and used um, in the private sector. We've just got to figure out how to do it in our own space. Let's talk performance work statements. Uh, how are you addressing um, improved evaluation criteria and clear mapping of requirements through performance work statements? Yeah, our PWSs, our performance workstations, wow, those are so important to us. And this is where I, I've, I've got to get the contracting officers and, and my clients, the, the, my subject matter experts uh, in the DHA. I, I need to get them the time so they can write really good PWSs. A critical piece to that is the evaluation criteria. Um, we have a tendency, our subject matter actually has a tendency to want to measure everything in that PWS as part of the evaluation. <laughs> and now then a very small contract takes then months and months to evaluate. It's just crazy. What we need to look for are those key discriminators. What makes one uh, proposal different from another and is it significant? That's what we need to measure on. So it's training up the source selection boards so that they get to that spot. It's making sure, and by the way, this is the number one reason why we get protests, we, the, the government gets protests, is that is that we don't follow our own evaluation criteria that is specified in the performance work statement. So we're training our folks to say, if this is what we said we were going to do, that is what we're going to do, and nobody's going to change from that. And, and with that emphasis, we've already started to see a downturn um, in, the, in it, we're kind of bending that curve on the number of uh, protests that we're receiving. Uh, you know, protests, um, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're not a bad thing, right? Protests mm -hmm. are things that... Um, uh, that we really need in, in, within the system. It's like it's like a, an employee um, having a grievance, right? They're, they're, an employee has a grievance because something in the system has failed them. And if I have an employee that has a grievance, I take them right to 
HR and we help them through it because something's not working. Well, I look at protests in a similar way. We support the process. We want them to be real. We want them to be significant uh, and, and meaningful uh, when we get them. Because what industry is telling us is that we've made a mistake. And wow, if we've made a mistake, we want a level playing field. Level playing field is good for us and it's good for industry. So we absolutely support it. But we want them to be uh, substantial and meaningful when they occur. How do you factor them into the acquisition life cycle? Yeah, we absolutely do that. Um, uh, we, we throw those into a probability of, of a protest is in the timeline. And we, we gauge that for um, what we think is uh, the probability that we have that protest. Has it been protested before? Is it likely to get protested again? What's the vendor space and, and, and how do they look at, uh, at protests? So, yes, we absolutely build, build that into the timeline. You know, just for our audience, is there a threshold in terms of uh, pricing that there that that uh, protests are uh, usually uh, you can gauge it? It's going to happen because it's worth X to the a- vendor community, a- or actually no, okay. um, no, we d- we don't see that. I mean, you would think that higher, you know, higher, higher price ones you see more protests, and, and actually we we don't see that. What we think we see is that uh, as the government went through a sequestration and the DOD's budget shrunk. Then we saw um, companies that if they lose a bid, that mm-hmm. becomes more an ex- existential thing for them. So we think that protests went up because of that That's factor. And I think that as we're seeing uh, more money flow into the Department of Defense, we're hoping that that, will, that curve will actually help to bend the curve as well. That's a good point. So, you know, um, are you considering implementing a, a DHA technical watch process, tech watch, uh, to increase innovation? And, you know, secondfold, uh, do you plan on using the Defense uh, Innovative Unit Experimental to kind of facilitate prototyping? Yeah, we're interested in both of those. Uh, probably on the tech watch itself, it may be a little more informal than where we want to okay. be. It's really based on the shared services and what those shared services are doing to keep abreast of the uh, of the status of the industry in their particular domain. So, yes, there's tech watch, and it's really uh, the responsibility of those shared service managers to keep an eye out there. Um, on the uh, DIUX, I think that's the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. Experimental, yeah. That organization uses um, a part of the law called, um, I want to say it's Other Transaction Authority. The FAR. It's outside of the FAR, it's actually. The FAR. Yeah. And, and, and what that allows them to do, it allows them to use um, an industry-based consortium in a particular area, we'll call it health IT just for an example, sure. and uh, we would work with DIUX to say, hey, we have this interest. A white paper would go to industry and responses would come back and then the DIUX with us as the customer would say, and here's the one we pick and it's over. So it's a very good way to get to prototype mm-hmm. uh, work. It isn't for operations. It isn't for turning the operational crank. It's very much focused in on innovation and prototyping. And it's a really good way to get the, to speed the, the, the time to delivery of, that, of those systems. In your role, the Defense Health Agency doesn't go at it alone. Industry is key in that role. Uh, would you tell us more about your industry outreach efforts how do you use these efforts to exchange ideas and ensure transparency uh, with your acquisitions? And perhaps you could outline some of your key recommendations kind of out of your recent discussions. Yeah, thanks. The, uh, we're working out a lot more to industry than I think that we have in the past. And, and I, I, I want to say that 
in my days uh, working with the TRICARE management activity, there almost seemed to be an adversarial relationship between the TMA and industry. And man, we want to break that down. This is a key uh, emphasis of Admiral Mono. She, she knows how valuable industry is. She knows that they bring innovation to the DHA, and we need that to be more successful. So we absolutely are driving very hard to to get a much more collaborative relationship with industry. We all know the rules. We play by the rules, and this is a healthy relationship. So to do that, I've, I've been working with industry, and we found out that industry really wants two very broad industry days a year. Mm-hmm. So we schedule one in the May time frame, and having been in industry, uh, we used to call it the buying season. I know that's probably the wrong term, <laughs> but the year-end closeout. And Sorry. so we schedule an industry day at that period because we know that the dollars are now released and we can do our spend. And industry knows it too, so we tell them what our biggest interests are. Similarly, at the start of the year, probably in November, i got to give October off to my poor contracting officers because they're just worn out. So in November, we'll have another industry day that will then look at the entire year. And, and potentially uh, uh, out years past that, so on the very on the very much larger ones. So industry days are very important in the general sense, but we will also have uh, opportunity-specific industry days that focus in on our larger opportunities. Uh, those will continue. We're also doing uh, what we're calling um, a industry partner network, an IPN, and this is a little bit like the Tech Watch. Uh, it's where we. We send out um, something on FedBizOps. This is a policy I'm developing. Put it out on on FedBizOps, and we're asking industry, send us a white paper on a particular topic. Mm-hmm. Industry responds, and we look at them, and we say, gosh, we got 10 in. These three are really good. Let's have them come in. So then they come in, and they do a Shark Tank-like mm-hmm. event where we have the panel, and we, we listen to them for an hour, do Q&A. And if they get a thumbs up, it's not that a contract comes out of it, but now I connect that industry partner with the subject matter experts or the program managers, and they have really good, valuable conversations. That's really what industry wants. They want to get connected with the people that are doing the work. And it's hard to get there because, I mean, these guys are doing work every day. How do I get them to spend time? So we've got to be very jealous, protect our program manager's time. But the, the value that industry b- brings to it, I've got to open up those opportunities. If those relationships are fruitful, um, probably my long-term measure of success there were how many of these Shark Tank thumbs up actually made it into programs. We don't change any of the contracting stuff. It's got to be valid requirements, but that would be a good measure of success. Sure. Uh, This is rich for the audience, I think. And uh, you've described several things here. You've talked uh, improved forecasts. You've talked industry partner network. You've talked industry days, opportunity-specific industry days. In reference to your industry partner network, what makes for an ideal industry partner? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's one that um, that has really done their homework, um, that has studied what the Admiral has spoken about in her speeches, that has studied our strategic plan, that knows what the Joint Health Service CONOPS is all about. So they're not coming to me and saying, what keeps you up at night? They're coming to me and saying, I know what your problems are, and here are some solutions for you. Mm-hmm. That is a huge value add to me. Mm-hmm. So it's an industry that's done their job. They, they're coming to me and they're showing me. They, they see gaps and they already have thought about how to fill those gaps. That is a tremendously valuable relationship. I'll invite those guys in any day of the week. So DHA has a very robust small business goal. Um, how do you view small businesses helping you achieve your goals and DHA's mission? And by contrast, uh, how 
do you see large businesses supporting your efforts? Yeah, we, we love small businesses. I know that's easy to say, but <laughs> but, re, but we really do because, I mean, as a person that has been in the private sector, I know that it's small business that actually drives the economy. I mean, that's where the jobs are. So as an agency, we absolutely support assisting the economy and development of the economy. But for us in particular, we like small business because small business are typically pretty thin, very innovative. That's why they're a small business. And they, because of that, they bring us new ideas, a new energy that allows us to develop better products and services. Our small business goals, I think, are around 40% of our work is, um, is by small business. Oh, in fact, that Q services one, buying those mm-hmm. docs and nurses, that is 100% small business, believe it or not. So we really like small business. Small business can do great work for us. In contrast to that, there are times where we do need large businesses. I need a large business that has, because of the scope of the work, or it has particularly difficult places where I really do need that national or internationally known system expert that I can't afford to have full-time or small business couldn't afford. So there are times where I really need that kind of reach back and that kind of depth. And it's only the, the large businesses that bring that kind of depth. So about 60% of our work is large, about 40% small. And I expect us to continually make our small business goals. The hardest one is the hub zones. And I even think we'll make that this year. So, you know, earlier you mentioned the government purchase card. Um, what is it and how are you expanding its use? And what are some of the reasons for doing that and the benefits you're seeking? So the government purchase card is that uh, is that card that allows that uh, very small organization to purchase uh, uh, products and services. It is uh, recent, very recently, ceiling on its use has gone up, which allows them to buy more things with it. And the key reason I'm, I need to expand that is that that's a mitigating factor that reduces the demand signal into my contracting officers. It allows my contracting officers, as I mentioned, to spend more time on complex contracts instead of spending time on small buys, a $1,000 buy, a $3,000 buy. Oh, my gosh, it cost me Mm $2,000 to write a contract. And it cost me $2,000 to close the contract. So a $1,000 item had just cost the government $5,000. It was just crazy. So I've got to dramatically expand that. And quite frankly, we're using an Air Force model. They have a very good end-to-end management across the Air Force of the government purchase card. We are going to use that as uh, leverage that policy and those procedures build that capability in the defense health agency because you got to manage it, you got to monitor it, you got to do all your checks and balances, you got to have the right people to do that, and then continue to expand that through the layers clear down to the medical treatment facility. I think with a dramatic expansion of the GPC, we'll see our contracting officers be able to spend that quality time on the work that we really hired them to do. What does the future hold for acquisition at the defense health agency? We will ask Dr. Barkley Butler. DHA's Component Acquisition Executive when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. 
The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. As the U.S. economy continues along the path to recovery, lawmakers are searching for ways to cut spending and reduce the country's $17 trillion debt. DOD, which consumes the second largest portion of government revenue after entitlements, will likely see significant cuts in the coming years. Indeed, cuts are already being made. At the same time, DOD must continue to support operations and modernize forces in order to support national security. In light of these budgetary constraints and evolving security challenges, DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while reducing the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. To be successful, DOD must incentivize and partner with the private sector and find ways to emulate the private sector's overall accomplishment, improving performance while reducing costs. What acquisition challenges are facing the U.S. Department of Defense? What about prior attempts at DOD acquisition reform? And what actions can be taken to improve defense acquisition and the defense industrial base? Today, we'll explore these questions and much more with Dr. Jack Gansler and Bill Lucian from the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy and authors of the IBM Center Report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Bill, welcome. Good to have you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Jack and Bill, there have been various efforts to improve DOD's acquisition performance. Would you highlight the key aspects of these prior attempts at DOD acquisition reform? And more particularly, what lessons have been learned from these initiatives? Well, one that immediately occurs to me is the Packard Commission. This was at the time when we had these overpriced toilet seats and hammers and, you know, coffee pots and things like that. Uh, And we approached it by looking at it from an organizational structure because uh, we didn't really have a single person in the Pentagon or in the whole Department of Defense responsible for acquisition up to that point. So we created an undersecretary of defense. And we also didn't have any one person responsible for all the requirements for the weapon systems, for the services, and so forth. So we created the uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Those two positions uh, then allowed us to make some structural changes, which I think is the right way to go about trying to do it, as contrasted to Congress's solution. Now, it's often good to tell some stories about, uh, you know, how, how did they react to it. Congress's solution to the overpriced toilet seats was to legislate a price not to exceed $220 each for a toilet seat and add 5,000 auditors to make sure that adding 5,000 auditors really increased the cost significantly and the delays and so forth. It didn't solve the problem of acquisition because it, it actually raised the cost and slowed down the process. And, Jack, you used to be in that role, right? Was I was, I was the undersecretary uh, at, at one point, yes. Bill, did you have anything to add? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at these uh, initiatives, many of them cover and try to address the same problems. 
if you look at the Carlucci initiatives, he came out with a list of topics that were very much similar to what you might see in the better buying power initiatives. And so one of the key problems is the cost of systems continues to grow consistently at about a 40% rate, and people don't necessarily implement the good ideas. And so one of the key issues, I think, is is the organizational inertia and organizational culture and how difficult it is to change that. And so all of these initiatives had excellent ideas in general, but they're, they're not always well implemented. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So um, your report also points out that the DOD uh, acquisition or it, basically it's the budget itself, the funding for DOD, has been cyclical historically. And, and I want to transition to uh, what are some of the fiscal or, or global threat challenges facing DOD today that will influence how they procure? Well, one of the most obvious things is it's uncertain. And therefore, the preparation for a wide variety of future potential events uh, has to uh, increase your cost because you got to, how do you handle everything from terrorism to cybersecurity to tank-on-tank engagements and so forth? And uh, that, that uncertainty represents uh, a challenge when the budgets are declining. And that's been a, a traditional problem. Uh, and in fact, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when he was there, Mike Mullen, said the number one national security problem is the debt. Mm-hmm. Because if we can't handle it all, how do we get prepared for it? And one of the first things that always goes when the budget declines, the first three things actually are travel, training, and research. So training and research are kind of foolish things to cut. On the other hand, uh, because especially with the uncertainty, you want to be able to respond rapidly, and that's what training is for, readiness. And research is so that you can stay ahead technologically. And we're losing our lead in that. And technology has now become globalized so that everybody has technology. It's hard to maintain technological leadership unless you invest in it. Bill, did you have any? You can see that the average budget over the last 70 years for DOD has been about $480 billion. And so we're still well above that level. But at the same time, you have increasing O&M costs and increasing health care costs increasing support costs. So there's a tremendous squeeze on what's left in the budget to allow for modernization. And that's, I believe, a significant threat. One, one of the things that I could add to that is, is that people believe that this 18-year cycle that we see in the defense budget is somehow a law of nature. It's not. It's exogenously driven. Every time there's an external event like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or North Korea, you know, any of those events, that's what drives the budget. It's not just a law of nature that uh, follows every 18 years. You build it up and it comes down and goes up and comes down. I think it's important to recognize that this uncertainty of, of the f- strategic environment is also affecting the uncertainty in the budget environment. Absolutely. Yeah. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Barkley Butler, Component Acquisition Executive at the Defense Health Agency. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Mark Newsom. 
So, Dr. Butler, agile has not normally uh, been a term associated with procurement or acquisition. Um, you've embraced the agile principles, as I understand it, in contracting uh, with forthcoming pilots. Can you provide details on how agile will deliver the change you desire? Yeah, a- agile um, is a concept that was uh, really came out of the software development industry, and uh, it was a concept that didn't look at um, surrogates of measures of performance. I didn't didn't say that. Gosh, you produce these documents, so your software must be doing good. It actually breaks that mold and says, looks at the software itself. How is the software doing itself in very short segments? It it, it also allows you to evolve the requirements. Remember the the program manager's iron triangle: um, oh, yeah. requirements, cost, and schedule. Right under waterfall, requirements are fixed, and it's cost and schedule that changes. Under agile. It's cost and schedule that are fixed, and the requirements can fluctuate. And it's because the requirements can fluctuate is that as the development of the software goes on, the end customer gets a better product because they get to shape it. Well, take that to a contracting officer and say, hey, I want a contract and the requirements change. And they just get sweaty upper lip. I mean, this is the wrong thing for them to do. But So what we do in the Agile software development world is that we create all these artifacts because it is our contracting processes that are very waterfall-ish, and we want to break that mold. So how do I create a contract that looks at the development of the software and the output of the system and and has the, the end customer say, yes, I like what I see as a measure, and keep going along that path as contrasted to any other surrogate measure? That'll be a trick. Although we've done it in government, I just got to find out who's done it and who's done it well and apply it within our own organization. I'll tell you, Colonel Wilson, out of our systems uh, design group, he uh, is using agile development, agile implementation. So what I want to do is now marry one of his small projects up with an agile contracting piece, train my contracting officers how to write agile contracts. Now I've got a process that I can then expand more broadly. Um- Tell us a little bit more about your uh, partnership and collaboration with General Services Administration. How's that relationship evolved over the past year or so? And what other agencies are you leveraging to achieve the mission? Yeah, we're getting closer and closer with uh, GSA. We've worked out an arrangement, and, and, and you probably know that they have the, uh, the health information technology SIN, the uh, special item number. And that is a number of companies, probably well over 100 now, that are part of this GSA SIN, that we will focus a lot of our uh, uh, our services, our professional services in that direction. And with that, as our spend goes up, GSA gives us a better cut on the fee. Uh, that's a good thing. And GSA brings other uh, opportunity uh, cost savings to us as well. It doesn't mean that I'll do everything through GSA. There are other vehicles that are out there that are very specialized um, that I can use to the benefit of the DHA. And so whereas my primary focus is going to go to GSA vehicles, where it makes sense, I'll use other ones. There are, for example, um, technical uh, vehicles out there that lead to prototypes. I will use those where it's most appropriate. Um, There's the other transaction authority that I'll use. Mm -hmm. There's uh, uh, NASA soup that I will likely Mm -hmm. use for IT products. So, so where it makes sense, I'll go other, uh, in other directions, but we will be substantially focused toward the GSA. 
So sort of turning to the future, what are some of the major opportunities and perhaps challenges your organization will encounter in the next couple of years? And more importantly, how do you envision your organization evolving to meet those challenges and seize those opportunities? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is really a challenge that we have for the nation. Um, I I remember an article I read, uh, I think it was even this week uh, out of the Wall Street Journal, uh, an economist by the name of uh, William Balma recently died, 95 years old, wonderful long life. And uh, and he discovered um, uh, the reason why some industries have a much a higher rate of cost increase than other industries do. And of course, healthcare being one of them. Mm-hmm. So as a nation, we're really facing that. And of course, uh, you know, it's like all economists, when I tell you the reason, it'll be like, yeah, no kidding. It seems <laughs> patently obvious, but they get Nobel Prizes for that. Yes, uh, and I can say that because my son-in-law is an economist. Anyways, so, so he, <laughs> he showed um, that it is the fundamental uh, physical nature, the labor part of that, that is the reason why certain industries have higher cost rates, higher increases in costs than any other industry. So as a nation and as a DHA, what are we doing to, to make that clinical encounter as effective and uh, productive as we possibly can? How do we get the provider, the doctor, the nurse, the clinician, the right kind of information so they can be maximally effective with their patient? How do we inform the patient so the patient understands what's going on and can be most communicative with the provider? How do we shape those uh, encounters so the patient is going to see the provider only when they really need to be. Mm-hmm. What about nurse address uh, advice lines? What about telemedicine? Are there other ways that will satisfy what that patient needs short of a clinical encounter? So it's doing everything we can do to maximize the value of that clinical encounter when I need it. I think that's what we have to do in the Defense Health Agency. I think that's what we have to do more broadly as a nation. It's one of those fundamental concepts that prices will rise higher. How do we shape that curve and bend that curve down? So, you know, Dr. Butler, um, what advice would you give someone who's perhaps thinking about a career in public service? Well, I've been in and out of uh, public service, and I'll tell you, uh, both domains are tremendously exciting. On On the private sector side, Wow, the rewards are huge, and the pace is fast. It's really an exciting place to be. Um, coming back into public service, uh, it brings that um, that added connection uh, to the mission. And there's nothing more rewarding than having uh, that connection to the mission, knowing that you're helping the nation, knowing that you're helping your ser- your fellow service members, uh, and 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 that you are really making an impact on how we are progressing as a nation. You know, I remember. Um, uh, Dr. Geis, Karen Geis, she was the principal deputy of uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. And she was giving a talk at a woman's forum. And one of the people asked her, said, uh, um, what were one of the things you did in your career? And she said, you know, when a door opened, I went through it. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, it was a great decision. <laughs> Sometimes it didn't, but most of the time it was great. Admiral Bono opened this door for me, and I went through it. Couldn't be happier. It's a great place to be. DHA is a great place to work, and I would I would encourage public service to anybody. Wonderful way to end this conversation. Thanks for taking some time out of your day. But more importantly, Mark and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you very much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Barkley Butler, the Defense Health Agency's Component Acquisition Executive. My co-host from IBM has been Mark Newsom. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the key priorities for the NIH Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, NITAC? How does NITAC assist federal agencies to accomplish their mission? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and much more with Bridget Gower, acting director of NITAC, on the next Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.